0: Okay. Let me begin in Luke 22, verse 1, and let me remind you that this is the word of our Lord. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan. "'entered in two Judas called Iscariot, "'who was of the number of the twelve. "'He went away and conferred with the chief priests "'and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. "'And they were glad and agreed to give him money. "'So he consented and sought an opportunity "'to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd.' Verse 7 begins the preparation for the meal, and then down in verse 14, they come to the table. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the disciples with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so after the breaking of the bread and the wine, we come to verse 21. And the Lord says there at the table, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another saying, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines or sits at the table But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then last, in verse 39, after all these things, Jesus came out and went. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. We're so filled with gratitude for just having the privilege and opportunity of worshiping you. We thank you for this, the Lord's Day, the day that our Savior was raised from the dead And as we walk through the days in which he suffered and was betrayed and was beaten and bruised and then nailed to a cross, Father, we pray for much grace and that our spirits would have strength to stand when we come to the place of understanding that it was because of our sin that these things happened to our Savior. So, Father, I pray that when we realize that, we would be reminded of the love of God in the person of Christ And for the sacrifice and for the blood that was spilled on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to you and our hearts would go from brokenness to praise. Father, help us as we look at your word right now. I pray that your spirit would move among us. I pray that your spirit would give me words that make sense. That You would make me faithful to your word. And I especially pray that all of us might hear and receive these words by faith. Believe them and obey them. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to kind of set your mind in the right place, or at least the place that I want to take you this morning by asking you a question. It's a question we'll begin with and end with probably this week and next week, so you've got plenty of time to think about it, but I do want you to consider it. And the question is this, how are you at faithfully following the Lord. Now, the will of God for our lives is not a mystery, even though I've heard it communicated a million times in my lifetime as some sort of mystery, like a treasure you're trying to find. And so you spend your life looking under rocks and trying to discover what it is that the Lord has planned for your life. And yet scripture is adamantly clear about the will of God for you. And it is this to give our lives to the glory of God through three things. Faithful worship, faithful witness, and faithful obedience. That's the will of God for you on Monday morning. That you might be faithful in worship, meaning you've got to get up a little early to do that. That you'll be faithful in witness when the Lord gives you opportunity, and I missed one this week, that you will faithfully open your mouth and proclaim his excellencies. And then number three, that you be faithful in obedience to his word. So how are you at being faithful to the Lord? And even more so than that, what about when circumstances appear to be against you? I mean, you can't really measure the depth of your faithfulness until you experience things that challenge your faithfulness, Right. We can say we're faithful, but until you experience things that are contrary, we don't know about the genuineness or the depth of your faithfulness. This morning, I want us to see how faithful our Lord was as a man, let me remind you, to faithfully follow after the will of the Father, even amidst disheartening and discouraging circumstances among his closest friends. You see, he's not even to the point where he's been handed over to the religious leaders in the Romans. He knew full well how that would be. But you would think that we would all be safe in the hands of friends and family closest to us. But even when the Lord was amidst friends, his faithfulness was still challenged by what was going on in and through them. Now, there's three things in this text this morning. That I want us to consider. And I know I'm not going to get through them all this morning, so I'm going to do my best to get through two. And then next Sunday morning we will come about the third difficult thing, even before the Lord was handed over. But this difficult day for our Lord was preceded, if you remember, in chapter 21, by a day in which he prepared his followers for their difficult days. Remember that? So the day before the Lord faces all of these things and then he goes on to Calvary. He sits down with all of his followers and he says, I've got to get you guys ready because difficult days are coming for you. And so you remember in chapter 21, verse 34, there was all these imperatives. He he said, but watch yourselves so the day won't come on you like a trap. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What are all these things that are going to take place? Very difficult days that will challenge your faithfulness. Those are those days. And those days are immediately followed by the day in which we'll stand before the Lord. And so the Son of God was preparing the children of God for days ahead. He's very gracious to do that. Right. Right. So as Jesus warned his followers in his day, the same word is for us that in our days we might prepare for our days of suffering. And they come upon you when you least expect them. Now, the Lord knew it was his time for suffering. The Passover meal was set. The sacrificial lamb had been slaughtered and they gathered at the table. And that animal on that table, that lamb, reminded him of what was about to take place in him. He was about to be slaughtered. That wasn't the only thing that was going on that was difficult. There was the anger and the opposition as the religious leaders had completely reached a boiling point. If there were a kettle on the stove, it's whistling loud. And the only thing left to take place was for the betrayal to take place, And so the role of the betrayer was all that was left that evening. And so Jesus faithfully prepared for that meal. He would celebrate it with the breaking of bread and wine, the new covenant that he was about to inaugurate in his own body. And all of these things were going on around him. And it was during that meal that Judas would fulfill his purpose as the betrayer. It was certainly sovereignty at work in Judas. This moment had been spoken beforehand a number of times in the Old Testament. David, when he set to write the Psalms, wrote in two different occasions, Psalms 41, David writes these words. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David wrote in Psalms 51, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could simply hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, who walked in the house of God. That was who was coming against the Lord Jesus at that table that night. So David penned the words under the influence of the Holy Spirit foreshadowing the days that we read or we read this morning in the Gospel of Luke. And since it was written in the word of God, the Son of God knew full well everything that was about to take place. Right. And so he's able to confidently say, notice with me in verse 22 of chapter 22. The Lord says, for the son of man goes as it has been determined. So the sovereignty of God was at work, but it was not fatalism at work. Judas was fully responsible for his actions, but he did have help with his betrayal. He acted alone, but he was not alone when he considered doing this wicked thing. Notice verse 3 of chapter 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. What does that mean? That's a little frightening. What does it mean that Judas, or what does it mean, rather, that Satan entered into Judas? Luke doesn't give us much, but I think John helps us to understand the answer of what that meant. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 13. And we'll see John use two different words that will help us better understand. John's Gospel, chapter 13. I want to begin in verse 2, but verse, verses 2 through 4 is very difficult. And it's English construction. It's really hard to keep up with. You have to read it a number of times to catch the flow. But if you'll notice in verse two, during supper. And then if you look down in verse four, rose from supper. OK, now what happens in between those two phrases is everything that was going on in and around the Lord. So during supper, he got up from supper and that's when he tied a towel about his waist. OK. But during supper, you'll notice the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So during supper, Judas had already had it formed within his mind and in his heart. He'd already, already considered these things that he was going to betray Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he arose from supper. Now, I want you to drop down in verse 26 because I want you to see another phrase. John 13, verse 26. Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it back to him when they were trying to figure out who would betray him. So, when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, notice this phrase Satan then entered into him verse 30 so after receiving the morsel he went out immediately and it was night so you've got two phrases there you've got satan putting it into his heart and then in verse 27 you have satan then entered into him and there's a difference between those two phrases now satan entering into judas is difficult to understand And certainly there's no lack of opinion as to what that means. But once you read them all, you realize that they're just running on opinions because there's nothing in the text that helps us to understand exactly what it means. But in Luke and John's Gospels, Satan entering is immediately associated with Judas's actions. It seems as though the motivation he needed to go ahead and act out in betrayal was accomplished by Satan doing something within him, entering into him. But I ask the question, what had Jesus done to put a target on his back for such a thing as Satan getting so involved in his life? Because you have to realize, Satan didn't know who would betray Jesus. Satan is not all-knowing. He is not God. If he had paid attention to the scriptures, reading Psalms 51 or 41, he could have gathered this. It will be someone close to him if he knew that. Could have been a disciple, maybe someone in his own family, even maybe one of the women who went around with him. Could have been a close friend like Mary or Martha. Satan had no idea unless, of course, God had flat out told him this will be the one because, again, Satan is not all knowing. Only God knows these things. But he did have to watch for an opportunity to work in and through someone to bring about the ruin of the Lord. Now, go back to with me to Luke 22, and I want to show you a word that's interesting in the midst of these. Luke 22, look at verse six. Verse six, so Judas consented to the plan and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, I find that interesting because opportunity is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means this. In that day, Judas was constantly looking and waiting and watching for an opportunity. He didn't know when it would be. But he consistently, constantly watched and waited to catch Jesus alone away from a crowd so that he could hand him over. And the reason that I I find that so fascinating, because before then, Satan had continuously been watching for his own opportunity to enter the heart of someone. And by now he knows who it would be, Judas. I'll give you an instance that may have been that opportunity when Satan saw. And it's in John chapter 12. You don't have to turn back there. You can just jot down verse 3 for notes if you're taking notes. Listen to this. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This was at Mary and Martha's house immediately, or in Bethany immediately before he goes to Jerusalem. Mary takes this expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus's feet and then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, John writes in hindsight, Judas asked this question, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, which was a whole year's wage? Why was the perfume not sold and given to the poor people? And then John's commentary says this. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because Judas was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into the money box. Again, John's writing hindsight. He didn't know at the time that Judas would help himself to the ministry bag. Now here, I I won't belabor here, but I was reminded the only person that knew that Judas used to steal from the bag was Jesus. And yet Jesus entrusted Judas with the money bag. And I bring that up to remind you, we think way too much of money. God apparently does not think very, any, think very much about it at all. So Judas had a love for money. He helped himself to the ministry money and the only one again who knew it was the Lord. And so the opportunity presented itself and Judas betrayed the Lord for money. If you look at verse 45 or verse five, rather in Luke 22, it says they were glad and agreed. You know what that word agreed means? Judas said something like this. Oh, I'll do it, but it will cost you. And they probably said, well, will you do it for 30 pieces of silver? And he said, probably. Or he might have, They may have said, would you do it for 20? He might have said no. What about 25? No. 30? Will you do it for 30 pieces of silver? At some point, Judas agreed, okay, I'll do it for that. This is one of the reasons I believe that there are so many passages warning us about money in the New Testament. The Lord spoke about it more than once, saying, No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot, even though we try, you cannot. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some... By longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I'm sure when Paul penned those words, he was thinking about Judas. Because he had literally swapped eternal life for 30 pieces of silver. Now, the reason I bring up this perspective is for the sake of those of you who've been coming on Wednesday night. It's just this past week that we talked about Ephesians 4.27. Do not give the devil an opportunity now in the immediate context of ephesians when paul's writing chapter 4 it's don't get angry don't let the sun go down on your wrath and give the devil an opportunity but all of chapter 4 is said in this section of ephesians where paul is teaching us to put off the old and put on the new and he lists a long list of things you need to put off and stealing and those sorts of things are among that list and in the midst of all this sits This phrase, do not give the devil an opportunity. Judas had certainly invited Satan to work in and through his life. Because he had a lust for money. I told you this Wednesday night. you, You don't understand. Sin will destroy you. If for no other reason than this you have opened the back door to Satan to work in your life and sometimes through your life. You better constantly examine your life and not be arrogant and foolish. As the mercies of the Lord are new every morning, repentance rolling out of your mouth needs to be new every evening. Turning from the things that you did and you said and you thought and don't hang on to them. Be like living in downtown Atlanta and keeping your doors unlocked at night. Man, it's not going to be long till you're in trouble. So, what was it that motivated Jesus' betrayal? His own sin? Satan? Or was it both? It was both. Another question to consider was Judas' betrayal a work of sovereignty or human responsibility? What's the answer to that? Both. Look what the Lord says in verse 22. Two phrases here in verse 22 of Luke 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determines in a perfect tense. God wrote about these days before there was ever any day. Before he set the sun and the, and the moon in the sky, before any star ever hung, God pinned the words down that the Son of Man would be handed over. By a betrayer. God had foreordained this day. It was set in stone. And yet look at the second part of that same passage. Verse 22. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas himself had done it. God had pinned it in sovereignty and Judas had done it in responsibility. And that's why he will be judged under the wrath of God forever in hell. The thing that made Judas's betrayal so appalling, though, was his closeness, his closeness to Christ. You see, we have John's hindsight when John wrote his gospel and he never gives Judas an inch. But you've got to understand, in these days, there was no understanding whatsoever that Judas was a rotten apple. He was not just some guy bent on betrayal. He was one of the twelve. And Luke does a good job of helping us see how close he was to Jesus. Look back at verse 3 with me. Luke 22, verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Look at verse 21. The Lord says at the table that night, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me. See that? Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12 was leading them and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Very typical greeting among the 12. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And you think about this, Judas was chosen by Christ. Judas would walk with Christ. He would see the miracles of Christ. He would hear the preachings of Christ. He would even see the dead raised by Christ, and yet he would betray that same Christ with a kiss. That is absolutely unthinkable, unrealistic. But that is just how far sin can carry you to do the unthinkable. He was one among them, and yet none of them had a clue, as I said. Look at verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Judas had never revealed what was going on in his heart. Not once. And no one had a clue. So back in verse three and four, notice with me, verse three says, Satan entered and then notice verse four, Judas left. And when Judas left, you'd hope that trouble for the evening left with him. But that would not be the case because there was more trouble to come among his closest group. In other words, we're not done with difficulty yet. And we're still sitting at the table. So he was not the only difficult thing during supper. There was a dispute among the disciples. And that word dispute means they were just itching and eager to argue about this particular thing. And considering the character of our Lord, it was a dispute of the worst kind that you could have in his presence. And when you think about this, we just came out of Thanksgiving, right? Some of you probably saw some family that you hadn't seen in a while. And so you're sitting there and certainly if you haven't, then you will during Christmas. And you've got a few things that you've got to be careful if you're going to bring up, because if you bring them up, you're going to you're going to cause a fight, right? Fortunately, for some of you, if you bring up the subject of God, you're going to make a lot in your family uncomfortable and conversations going to either shut down or get tense. For some of you, you can make it through that. But if you bring up the issue of politics, things will go south in a hurry. Right. This past year, we had a new one added to the list. If you want to talk about the covid vaccine, well, there you go. You just lost dinner because somebody's going to get mad. But to be at dinner with the Lord and break out in an argument that was motivated solely by pride would be the worst kind of argument you could ever have when you consider who was sitting at the table. The Bible consistently makes it clear of the hatred of God for pride. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says this, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride, arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I Hate. Proverbs 16, the Lord says this, everyone who is or everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be sure he will not go unpunished. Isaiah writes for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud. And it's in the New Testament more than once. In fact, James and Peter both write God is opposed to the proud. And yet those closest to Christ succumb to the powerful pull of the flesh and break out in an argument. They're just itching to argue about which one of them is the greatest. Look at verse 24. Again, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded or thought of as the greatest. Probably as the disciples sensed that significant things were about to take place, that the Lord was about to assume his kingdom. Certainly his followers were well positioned to reap the benefits of the kingdom. So who would be given the highest place in the days ahead? Now, what made the argument even more disappointing is the fact that this moment had already taken place. John writes about this. Jesus had already gotten up, took off his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist, Gotten a base of water, washed the disciples' feet, sat back down, went back to dinner. As soon as they're done with dinner, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Terrible timing, terrible subject, terrible everything. You know, this is not the first time we've had this discussion. Luke has already recorded another time that the Lord had to deal with this issue. Back in Luke 9, same argument. But this time there was a child standing nearby. And so the Lord brings up this child and tries to tell the disciples until you make yourself like this child, humble, contrite, you're not going to enter in the kingdom of God. So the Lord was always teaching these things. The Lord is patiently teaching them again at the table just hours before he's going to die. We've got to go through it one more time about you and your concern for yourself. I guess if I taught on the subject of self-pride once a month, it would not be too often for us. I think if I could set my phone up to send me a text every day to not be prideful and arrogant, that would be best for me. But we have to hear it often. Notice verse 25. The Lord said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, the lost, Exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Now, benefactors, an interesting word. It's the people of position, people of glory. And it's interesting, the verb there is in the middle voice. They call themselves glorious or they call themselves significant, right? But the Lord concludes, not so with you. This is how the world works. And I consistently try to teach you that the church and the world have nothing in common. And yet so many people want to bring the world's thinking into the church. And that's caused so much harm for the church. Whether it's the man behind the pulpit or quote unquote deacons or some group or some, some committee or even a congregation Voting to try and take charge of the Lord's church is something foolish and foolhardy. It's right out of the world. We have but one authority, and I read from it when I began this morning. And this is the word of God. We have no right to exercise authority in the house of God. The most godly among us, the one who is most like their Savior, the one who glorifies God the most is the one who consistently serves others. Look at verse 26. Jesus goes on, Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I, you see that? But I. I am among you as the one who serves. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. As a church and hopefully individually as followers of Christ, we will continually come back to this truth in God's word and allow it to shape how we think. We must submit our lives to the teachings of Christ, the example of Christ, the the spirit within us in order to glorify Christ in these things. So Judas had made the evening difficult for the Lord and all the disciples had made it difficult for the Lord. But there's one more thing to happen among the 12, and that is inconceivable. And that was the denial of the Lord three times. But we'll come back to that next week. So let me go back to my questions again this morning. Where does the Lord most often find you in regard to steadfast faithfulness? Where does he find you? Especially when circumstances have aligned themselves against you. When sin calls or Satan attacks or even when friends and family greatly disappoint you and sometimes even align themselves against you, where does the Lord find you? We've got the example before us. You know where we found the Lord? Faithfully administering the Lord's Supper, waiting to sing the hymn and go out in faithful and humble obedience to the Father and give His life as a ransom for many. Where would we be in that moment? Would we be able to stand or would we be focusing on all the problems around us? Would we be appalled that it was a close friend who had betrayed us? Would we be sideways in our thinking because family had come against us and turned against us? Or will we continue walking faithfully with the Lord? Are you able to focus in on the call of God in Christ Jesus and remain steadfast and faithful to that call even when things are hard? Let's pray.